Welcome to Civil Discourse, a public affairs production of Yelamimbris Community Radio, KURU 89.1 FM. I'm your host, Jamie Newton. Our topic is Immigration Justice 2017, Risks, Rights, and Opportunities. My guests are three immigration attorneys, Allegra Love, Horatio Moreno-Campos, and George Carr, a Dreamer student at Western New Mexico University, Grecia Rivas-Chavez, and political science professor Magdaleno Manzanares, who is also vice president for external affairs at Western New Mexico University. As always, the views expressed in this program are those of the speakers and not necessarily representative of Gila Mimbres Community Radio and KURU. And now let me introduce and welcome my guests. Allegra Lowe and Love is an immigration attorney and founder and director of the Santa Fe Dreamers Project. She holds a bachelor's degree in environmental studies from Dartmouth College and a JD from the University of New Mexico, and she is also a licensed teacher in New Mexico. She's a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, serves on the board of New Mexico Bar Association's Immigration Lawyer Group, and Santa Fe's Commission for Youth and Children. She volunteers for the CARA Pro Bono Project, assisting detained refugee families on the U.S.-Mexico border. Welcome, Allegra Love. Thank you for having me. Horatio Moreno-Campos received his bachelor's degree in history from Western New Mexico University right here, and his Master of Public Administration and Juris Doctor from the University of New Mexico. He practices law in Albuquerque, where he chairs the board for the Immigration Law Section of the New Mexico State Bar, and he is the supervising attorney of the citizenship program of ULE, Organizers in the Land of Enchantment, and he teaches an online immigration course for WNMU. Welcome, Horatio Moreno-Campos. Thank you for having me. Grecia Rivas-Chavez is a graphic designer with the Office of Communications at Western New Mexico University. She graduated from Palo Verde Magnet High School in Tucson, Arizona, attended Pima Community College, and transferred to WNMU this fall. She's a 23-year-old undocumented immigrant with a mission. She's been active in the immigrant rights movement for the past three years, and she's working to make higher education accessible to all students. Grecia Rivas was born in Nogales, Sonora, Mexico, and immigrated to the United States when she was just three years old. From lifelong experience, she understands the challenges faced by undocumented immigrants. She benefits from a federal program called DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that was created by President Obama in 2012. Grecia Rivas co-facilitates webinars about education, access, and trains high school counselors on how to work more effectively with immigrant families. Welcome, Grecia Rivas. Thank you for having me. Dr. Magdaleno Manzanares was born in Mexico and emigrated to the United States, where he earned a bachelor's degree in international relations and a master's degree in political science and public administration from Sonoma State University and a Ph.D. in political science from Northern Arizona University. He taught university students for 15 years and in 2013 became vice president for external affairs at Western New Mexico University. Dr. Manzanares is an expert on North American border conflicts, race, politics, and ethics, and the economics of security. Welcome, Dr. Magdaleno Manzanares. Thank you. Gracias. 
George Carr practiced law in Florida for 41 years. He represented migrant farm workers on a range of rights issues, entitlement to food stamps, wage disputes, peonage, discrimination, and immigration. At the end of his long career, he represented a group of about 250 Guatemalan refugees seeking political asylum. As the Reagan administration began to impose restrictions on legal services corporations, George Carr voluntarily resigned his position because otherwise his employer would have lost vital government funding. He and his wife now reside in Silver City. Welcome, George Carr. Thank you very much. We heard at a forum tonight where a number of our guests here were panelists the importance of realizing that we are not talking about abstractions when we talk about immigration justice, risks, rights, and opportunities here. We're talking about real people with real lives. And so with her permission, I want to begin with Grecia Rivas, whom I introduced as a Dreamer student who will, in just a few short months, graduate from this university, came to this country at the age of three, and Grecia Rivas, you have acknowledged your undocumented status openly. I'd like, I'd like you to tell your story. I'd like to know what this means for you and your family. Does it put you at special risk of detention and deportation? Does perhaps your activism put your family at risk? And do you feel protected here by a community of support? How do you find courage for your sense of mission to help other immigrants? Grecia Rivas. Thank you. Well, as a Latina, uh, growing up in a really a Mexican family and being a woman, you're always told to be silent, to be quiet, don't, don't talk where you're not told, to just stay silent. And so for me, um, coming out and, and saying that I was undocumented was a big step for me, saying that I was not going to let other people um, stop me from, um, from telling my story, from really telling them the reality that is happening and that I'm going through. So for me, it was a big step. And I think just seeing other students like myself, um, being involved with these organizations, and just listening to a lot of stories um, really opened up me to come out and and tell my own story, because I believe stories are really powerful. And I think they make a big difference. And so for me, it was like, it's time for me to, to tell my story, for me to to let everybody know that this is reality, to actually be an example for other students, for other young immigrants, to also come out and tell their story and tell them that it's okay, that it's going to be okay. And, yeah, a lot of people see it as it's a risk because it makes sense it's a risk because I, I, can, I can get deported or someone might call eyes or anything like that. But for me, I don't see it as a risk, but I see it as an opportunity, an opportunity for me to educate others, an opportunity to, to bring awareness like I said, to to have other students feel free and comfortable to come out and see, well, if she did it, I can do it too. So personally, I don't see it as a risk. I know my parents do see it, and they always tell me, why, why are you going and talking? Why are you why are you on TV or why are you this? I'm like, mom, it's gonna be okay. If you don't if you don't talk about these things, if you don't share your stories, nobody is gonna hear and nobody's gonna start talking about it. And that's the way you you make a difference. You make change when you talk, when you when you let other people know that this is reality. And you bring this human reality to a public dialogue where otherwise it might be concealed. And yet, your parents fear for you, 
and you have some fear for them, what is that like for your family? What, what risks are you concerned about? Personally, I'm more worried about my parents and my parents uh, worry about me. Yes. Just because, yes, I have DACA. I have some relief, but they don't. They don't have that. And so every night, knowing that I'm over here in Silver City and they're over there in Tucson and not being able to know, oh, are they okay today? Or like when they don't answer my phone, my phone calls, I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? Or I'm worried. So I, I'm constantly like talking to them, texting them, and just seeing if they're okay or not. But it's it's a constant thing that it, it's a reality that happens. That it's happening to me every day. I have to worry. And I don't think it's going to go away until they until there's a solution for this. Is there concern, and yours for them, at a level mm -hmm. where when they hear a knock on the door, they're not expecting it's a chill? Um, no, I think it's more like if they get stopped by a cop mm -hmm. when they're driving or something like that, or my dad goes out of work and my mom doesn't know what's happening, or he doesn't hear from him for a while, my mom gets a lot of uh, worry. So it's more on that. Because in Arizona, they'll stop you for everything. <laughs> So it's, it's really, really rough in Arizona. People hearing this program are very likely to have a response of wanting to help. As an undocumented immigrant, as a Dreamer student with some protection from DACA, what kind of support would you want and welcome from citizens who would like to be helpful and may not know how? I guess it starts from using, like Allegra was saying in our panel, um, using the right terms not using illegal, not using aliens, just the wording. It starts from those little things that make a lot of difference. And getting educated, knowing what our immigrants' rights are and what they can do to help us as well. And But it's basically just getting educated, and that's a way that they can help us. Grecia Rivas, thank you for speaking so frankly and with such courage. Allegra Love, one of three attorneys here as guests at Gila Membres Community Radio. The organization you founded is called the Santa Fe Dreamers Project, and you spend a great deal, maybe all of your professional time, working on immigration issues. You've volunteered in detention centers. I think you mentioned two of them on the forum. Can you tell us, give us a, a kind of larger legal and policy context for this? What motivated you to form the Dreamers Project? What do you do? How do you direct your efforts? And what are the goals that you're trying to meet? How can people help who want to? That was also, I think, the topic of a workshop that you gave today. How can people help? How can be, people be allies? Yeah, so I am not an immigrant. I was born in New Jersey. And I wasn't really interested in immigration issues, but I was an elementary school teacher in Santa Fe. And in 2006, we had a raid in the Operation Return to Sender things under George Bush. And I was working at a bilingual elementary school, a lot of mixed status immigrant families going there. And uh, my class size of 28 dwindled to three. It wasn't because people were being deported. It's because people were scared to come to school. And I was alarmed. My, my students, I was calling families, being, where are you? And they were asking me questions, and I just didn't know how to answer them. And this was the first time in my life I'd ever started paying attention to immigration issues. Much like a lot of people right now, this is the first time they're starting to pay attention to immigration issues. I set myself on a course of learning, and I went to Arizona, and I went to Mexico, and I started talking to folks, and I started talking to the people in my community. And the more I learned, the more I saw like a huge gap between 
what I knew about my friends and my neighbors and my students and their families and what I was hearing on the news. And I got super angry and I decided, what's the best way I can help is I can go to law school. I have all that. I'm privileged. I'm well-educated. I had the cash for it. And so I went to law school because I wanted to have the most sophisticated tools possible in my toolbox to help those people in my community. And so that's what my project's about. It's about exploring whether or not by providing, sharing those tools, by providing free legal services at no cost to people in my community, if we can start to impact the progress of immigrants in our community, whether it's through their education, whether it's through getting them jobs, whether it's through helping them stabilize their family, and sort of seeing that as something I can give. I can give those free legal services so that they can give their thing to our community and, and, and make us all stronger and make my town, and whether it's Santa Fe or New Mexico or the U.S., a better place to be. Thank you. You are listening to Civil Discourse on Gila Mimbres Community Radio, and KURU will return in a moment. And welcome back to Civil Discourse. I'm your host, Jamie Newton, and my guests are three immigration attorneys, a student, and a professor. Our topic is Immigration Justice 2017, Risks, Rights, and Opportunities. We've heard from Grecia Rivas, who is a Dreamer student at Western New Mexico University and is, without fear, a person who can present herself as she is, an undocumented immigrant here making a good life. We've heard from Allegra Love, who is an immigration attorney, about her personal journey from direct experience as a teacher to an encounter with the realities of life for immigrants and now her practice as an attorney. And we turn to our second attorney, Horatio Moreno Campos, whose organization is called OLE, stands for Organizers in the Land of Enchantment, Olay helps immigrants learn the steps to citizenship, supports them through the process, and helps them to become established as new citizens once they become citizens. So, Horatio Moreno Campos, please tell us how this process works, how you guide people towards citizenship, and especially for immigrants who are at legal risk because they're undocumented. And how can other citizens help you? Well, absolutely. Um, there at Olay... Um, that's exactly right. We do citizenship. That's the primary uh, goal of one of their campaigns. Uh, they are a, a nonprofit organization, community organization, so they have other campaigns that they do as well. But it all revolves around civic duty and being engaged with uh, your own community. So while citizenship is one very important one, it uh, ties, it dovetails very well into their campaigns to register people for voting and getting out the vote every uh, time there's an election season. So that's important, and it's, it's probably one of the greatest parts of my career as an immigration attorney is to guide people through the process of citizenship, uh, which means they've already been a lawful permanent resident of the United States for either three or five years, depending on how they become a resident. And becoming a citizen is, all, is all the last step. So um, usually in that last step, um, unless there's some major complication, it's just a matter of reviewing that everything's eligible and they can follow this path without incident. Um, however, in my private capacity as an immigration attorney, I hear all kinds of cases and I hear all kinds of stories. And that's, that's really, um, it's almost that my nonprofit hat allows me to engage in my private hat because 
it really is um it's a hard battle and i think the title of your your show tonight jamie is very appropriate it is risks rights and opportunities i mean as immigration attorneys that's basically what we're doing we're advising on what the rights are what the law says this is how the law works right these are the opportunities that you may have either as an undocumented or as a daca or however status you may be these are the opportunities that the law, the law creates for you and then these are the risks these are what i see the risk may be with you getting deported with you getting a relief approved um, right because those are different uh, different considerations but that's very much what we do as immigration attorneys help people navigate this complicated hodgepodge of laws since 1952 and all these different uh, definitions of different crimes and violations to try to get people ultimately to become residents and to become citizens, which is a great thing. I would just like to take the opportunity to say DACA is an amazing thing, and I really appreciate what DACA has done for a lot of people that I see on a regular basis. And would you but, say once again what those initials stand for? Absolutely. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Deferred Action meaning... We could send you away, but we won't. We're deferring. That's exactly right, Jamie. It's a literal meaning, so deferred action. So you have to apply. You put yourself on immigration's radar, and what they're going to say is, okay, we're going to defer action in your matter. So while you are removable from this country for being here present without documents, we are going to defer action. We'll give you a two-year work permit that you have to renew every two years, and you can travel freely within the country. You can only leave the country for very three limited reasons, education, employment, or humanitarian reasons. So I just want to say, and this is my opinion, I don't mean to knock anything about Dreamers and DACA, but it's a concession. And the word Dreamers is a, almost a misnomer that we should understand that in Dream, the DREAM Act never went through. And that's a problem. So while we refer to everyone who got DACA as Dreamers, it's a misnomer. They got DACA, which is temporary, which doesn't create a path to permanent legal status, which will never create a path to citizenship. All it does is give them work permits. And it creates, uh, allows them to travel freely within the U.S. But at any given time, for any significant misdemeanor, as defined by the immigration uh, authorities, they can be deported just as easily. So uh, while it's a great thing, and I appreciate everything that's done, understand that dreamers um, are still dreaming, and we're still on their side, and it's not over. And we hope that eventually there will be comprehensive immigration reform or something like a DREAM Act that will actually get pushed through so that someone who has DACA can actually have a path to permanent status. So let me return to Grecia for a moment. You gave earlier at the forum a very concise summary of the origins of the DREAM Act, which did not pass in 2001 and almost passed in 2010. Can you just repeat a little of that now so that our listeners will know what's meant by the DREAM Act and why we don't have one? So yeah, in 2001, it was brought into Congress and it was not passed. Then again, in 2010, it was brought to Congress again. And it was passed by the Senate, but it was not passed by the House by eight votes short. Just eight votes. Eight votes. So close. DREAM has come to be an acronym, and that acronym stands for Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. Mm -hmm. And I'm struck by that term, alien minors. And we are not talking about small people with great dark eyes who did not come from this planet. That's one of the terms that you were saying is really, that's, that's an epithet, really, Correct. isn't it? That's something mm -hmm. that sets people apart from one another. Mm -hmm. And Horatio Moreno Campos, I wanted to ask you, is the quest for citizenship essentially something between the person and the government with the aid of an attorney? Or are there ways that people who have their citizenship and would like to serve as allies 
can help with that process. Mm, that's a good question, Jamie. So the first step would be residency, right? They'd become a permanent resident, and then depending on how they became a resident, they might be eligible for citizenship. And if they've gone through the process, they might be able to share that information with other people who might be eligible for similar benefits. And technically speaking, Jamie, anybody can prepare a form for anybody else. But that's got to be overseen. And there are obviously problems with that as well, because Mm -hmm. it may seem as simple as preparing a form. But all those questions and answers on those forms will carry serious consequences if you don't understand the ramifications of what they're seeking in asking those questions. So while, yes, people can help, we try to say be careful, especially with notarios. Uh, I don't mean to get on a soapbox either, but if you're familiar with, uh, especially in Latin American countries, notarios can actually prepare legal documents. But here in the United States, notarios have a very limited capacity. They're just verifying the identity of whoever's signing a document in front of them. However, people who come here from Latin American countries understand that notario means they can prepare documents. So they go to the notario, and the notario will fill out a document for them. But they're not, they're not lawyers. They don't have legal training, and that can get people in trouble. So we support community support, but we, we definitely would advise to speak with an immigration attorney in any uh, point, preparing forms or getting advice. Helpful information. And so a well-meaning individual who is not legally trained might serve as a mentor, especially if that person had experienced the process herself, but would do well to be working under the supervision of an attorney, perhaps in a nonprofit organization, make the attorney's time go further. But once having drafted everything get it gone through by an attorney to make sure that it is well drafted. Very well put, Jamie. That would be a very good uh, way to put that because that's what we'd like the support for them to demystify and give them perhaps the courage to come out and maybe seek a benefit that they may not have been comfortable trying to seek in the past. But yes, they need to be careful as to not go beyond that. Allegra Love, in the work that you do with the Santa Fe Dreamers Project, are there ways that Well-intentioned citizens who would like to be helpful can provide support. Of course you need donations, but beyond giving money of time and effort, the kind of thing that engages a person who is concerned just as a public-spirited person and would like to, let's say, meet someone like Grecia and provide useful personal support and not, in fact, be complicating her life. We practice federal law, and we've been getting this um, request all over. People saying we'd love to come to your office and help out because we want to help out immigrants. And I get that. But we also practice federal law, and it's a really complicated thing for me. It often makes my job harder to try and teach someone who doesn't know anything about it how to participate. But here's the good news. You don't need to come to my office and fill out paperwork to lend a hand to an immigrant. Go to a school, tutor someone. Go help out at a food bank. Help raise money for scholarships. Go help out, support someone's education, support their economic well-being, support affordable housing in your community. There's all sorts of ways to engage with the immigrant community that doesn't require filling out forms. And I think that it feels a little sexy right now, maybe for the first time ever, to be an immigration attorney. Trust me, it's not. (laughs) But what I mean is we have to remember that people like us, we went to law school, went into a ton of debt to get this license to do it. And it's not something that can just be come in and volunteered at, but that your imagination can find all sorts of ways to interact 
With immigrants, when you remember that immigrants are all over a community doing all kinds of things. They're not just in their lawyer's offices. They're doing everything. You can be side by side with an immigrant volunteering on a project with them to help other people. There's all, you just have to think, maybe not objectify people so much and say immigrants don't only need legal help. They need the same exact community support that everyone else in our community needs. So would it be something of a summary to say, well, as Dr. Monsonatis said at the forum, there is a human reality here, and I have human reality next to me, words to that effect. If you're wondering how an immigrant can be helped, think about what anyone needs in addition to specific legal assistance. There are many things that you can do to help any neighbor or friend. Yes. And also... For those of you who have money, yeah, donate to your grassroots legal organization. Also, spend your money in immigrant-owned businesses. It's a great way to support immigrant community. Spend your dollars in their restaurants and in the businesses. That's a great way to give your thumbs up to immigrants in this country. Thank you. You are listening to Civil Discourse on Gila Mimbres Community Radio. We will return in a moment. Please stay with us. You are listening to Civil Discourse, where our topic is Immigration Justice 2017, Risks, Rights, and Opportunities. My guests are three immigration attorneys, a Dreamer student, and a professor. And I now turn to George Carr, a recently retired immigration attorney who spent most of his life representing people who were victims of exploitation, feared for their lives, really People Under Duress in the state of Florida. I'd like to ask you, George Carr, to reflect on what you have witnessed during your several decades as an immigration attorney in terms of U.S. policies and practices toward immigrants. What have you observed historically? What do you see in the present? And as the Trump administration signals its intentions and begins to act on them, what do you foresee in the future? I know that's a lot to talk about, but a distillation, as attorneys, of course, are accustomed to giving. One of those memories that will survive Alzheimer's that I have uh, involves a case where I represented 250 Guatemalan refugees or people who were asking for political asylum after they, were not, they got into the United States from uh, a small town in Florida called Indian Town. The town was entirely Hispanic. There were many undocumented people there. Um, the town was so well organized that if at that time INS entered the village, everybody knew about it in about two minutes. Maybe uh, everybody doesn't know what INS means here, well, if you will. <laughs> okay. It's Immigration and Naturalization Service, which only old people remember. Um, it is now turned into five or six different agencies, the principal one being ICE, ICE. Which uh, stands for Immigration, immigration Customs Enforcement. Oh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> this group were Kanabali Indians from northwest Guatemala. All of them had been through situations which I can barely imagine. The first guy to arrive in Indian Town, came here with his sister after he lived under a pile of bodies in his village in Guatemala. The government came in, uh, machine gun down, everybody that they could find in town, 
he survived because he stayed still under the pile of bodies and left in the night. His sister was hiding in a cave, um, and they traveled without any resources at all from Guatemala to Tijuana. They made numerous attempts to enter into the United States. The only way they could get in was finally uh, by crawling through a nine-mile tunnel, a a nine-mile abandoned sewer line. Uh, While they were there, uh, crawling through the sewer pipe, they were attacked by rats. This caused the death of the sister. My client came to, uh, or the first guy, came to Indian Town because he heard a rumor that he could get could get a job in agriculture. He stayed there for a week, and he made $400. $400 for him was the equivalent to an annual income in Guatemala. So he left, um, and then he came back with five more. After that... Those guys stayed around for a couple of weeks. They came back with 25. And then those guys stayed for a while, and then they came back with 250 and a village marimba. We tried for a long time to just simply try and stay under the radar. Um, But these people were all short. They had high cheekbones and straight back hair. They didn't look very Mexican. Um, Most of them could not speak Spanish because they only knew uh, an Indian dialect. The first guy who came, in my opinion, is the smartest person I've ever met and is also one of the, the most effective and compassionate people I've ever met. His whole effort was to try and save his group of Kanabali Indians. There were 50,000 of them before the government decided to engage in just genocide. There were 5,000 who survived out of those 50,000. The policy of the United States government at that time under Ronald Reagan was to claim that these people were not entitled to political asylum. There was a very strong idea in the State Department that we had to support the, the government in Guatemala. There had been numerous attempts by individuals to get political asylum for Guatemalan refugees. Many of them had failed. Shortly before the hearing, uh, the the crucial hearing for my clients, uh, there were another group of 250 Guatemalans that were returned to Guatemala City, and there was a video of all of them being killed immediately when they arrived. So I went to, the, to our hearing feeling a great deal of responsibility. And uh, in preparation for this, applying for asylum is not an easy business. You have to have all kinds of documentations establishing the fact that you fear for your life on the basis of ethnicity or political opinion or something like that. Um, in our case... We claimed that it was all ethnicity and that the government was engaging in a a program of genocide. This was something which the State Department absolutely did not want to have any kind of judgment on. The immigration judges are employees of the Department of Justice. They are not what lawyers call constitutional judges. Um, 
they are they can be fired or they can be dismissed or they can be harassed if they do the wrong thing. The judge that heard our case, based on a videotape showing the the prior group of Guatemalans being killed, decided that that was his career-ending moment, and he ruled for our clients. I talked to him afterwards, and he said that uh, he had to resign very shortly thereafter, uh, but he knew that he was going to have to do that, but he could not, as a matter of his own personal conscience, and as a matter of being able to relate at all to his children, had to rule in our favor. In terms of what I, I have seen over time, my best friends are people who uh, try every day to, to simply survive, to try and get things like food stamps, to try and find some place to stay. The farm workers that I represented lived in very often in uh, migrant labor camps, which Walter Mondale characterized as a microcosm of every evil in society, and he's absolutely right about that. The corporate agriculture is determined to get the greatest leverage over workers that they possibly can. When I began working, there were many United States-born citizens that were hardcore alcoholics that could be taken off to a distant labor camp, um, forced to work against their will, and be presented with a very big bill for the, the wine that was sold by the crew leader. Um, that changed. There, in the late 1970s, there were a waves of Haitian immigrants who, again, the Reagan administration did not want to allow these people in, um, who were legitimate asylees, and they started working in, in agriculture. And with an undocumented status, it was great for the growers because they didn't have to pay them. After that, undocumented Mexican workers were the, the group of choice. And now the group of choice are people who come in under a special visa program, which in my opinion is rife with all the badges of slavery that there can be. And that is a program which, uh, incidentally, the owner of the Mar-a-Lago Resort has chosen to be engaged in, and another entity called the Trump Winery also uses. The people in, in these visa classes have to remain at work for their employer, and if they are absent from work for more than three days, they are deported. They have virtually no leverage whatsoever. If they are not paid according to the, to the standards that are really just a joke set by the Department of Labor, all they have to do is get deported to Mexico and find an attorney in the United States who will sue, who will sue the grower. That is not an easy proposition. That's not an easy proposition. Actually, we did that once with an organized group of people who deliberately got recruited in Mexico and taken to a grove. Uh, they all quit at the same time and surrendered to INS, and we sued everybody in sight. We were very successful in that, but that doesn't happen. It can't happen under the H-2 program. The conclusion that I have to say is, over time, I've seen people in great distress who are entitled to a great deal of legal 
protection, just as a matter of humanity, lose all their rights. And I thought that I could retire. <laughs> I thought that Hillary was going to win. And I thought I could retire and look back on my career with a great deal of frustration. But I found now that I can't remain silent. This is the worst it's ever been. And it's going to get worse. That's all I can say. Thank you, George Carr, and particularly for sharing the depth of that personal experience. We will come back to civil discourse and talk about what is involved in being classified as a legitimate asylum seeker, as a refugee, how one goes through that process, particularly within this hemisphere and not coming from a country uh, outside the Western Hemisphere. And we will also examine the origins of this situation that we've just heard so vividly described. Stay with us. are listening to Civil Discourse on Gila Mimbres Community Radio and KURU. Our topic is Immigration Justice 2017, Risks, Rights, and Opportunities. We have heard some very compelling personal experiences described on this program, and there is a key issue that some of these experiences raise, that is, how does one attain the kind of status as a refugee as an immigrant seeking protection that would in fact bring in the power of the United States through its government to protect a person against threats to life and property in a dangerous location. Uh, we heard earlier in the forum today some commentary on that. I wonder if one of uh, the panelists from that forum, Allegra or Horatio Moreno Campos, could speak to this. I was startled to learn from you that you must be in this country unless you've had a particular experience such as maybe available to someone in a refugee camp in Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq. Allegra Love, can you speak to that? Of course. So the word refugee is being used a lot in the news right now, especially as a refugee crisis unfolds all across Europe. I think sometimes people don't even realize we have a similar crisis happening on our own border with people fleeing Central America. The big difference between refugees coming out of, say, the Middle East and refugees coming out of Central America is that in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas, we don't have a third-party location where you can go and ask to have your claim for state protection evaluated. What you have to do here is you have to get to a country and you have to tell that country that you need their protection and that your life is in danger. And then they're pretty much required to let you in and evaluate that claim if you demonstrate fear. And so what's happening on our border right now is we're not having a huge problem with Mexican migration. We're actually at a net negative migration with Mexico. Most of our border arrivals right now are coming from the Northern Triangle of Central America to ask for their claim for political asylum to be evaluated. They're just putting their feet into our country and they're saying, I need help. My life is in danger in my country. And then we are responsible for evaluating that claim, which is their claim to political asylum. These are people from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. And Honduras, yeah. yeah. And But we're starting to see more and more different folks arriving at our border, too. I mean, the world is a very dangerous and difficult place to live right now. 
But I would say those three countries represent the bulk of the crisis. And it's really scary because the refugee definition, as George mentioned, is, is hard to meet. It's not simply about your life being in danger. It's also about why your life is in danger and what part of your identity has made your life in danger. And if it's too generalized, if your country is just a violent place to live, you don't qualify as a political asylee. It has to be something particular about you, about your identity that you can't change that makes you a target to threats. Such as? Like for a good example of this is if you lived in a country where homosexuals were a target of violence and you were homosexual, that's something about your identity. It's called a particular social group that makes you a particular target for violence. When you're talking about the problems in Central America, you're talking about young men who are being targeted by gang violence, women who are being targeted for femicide. There's nothing particular enough about who those people are that qualify them for for political asylum in a lot of cases. And so those people could be sent back and killed. Yes. And they will have gone through the due process for political asylum. They'll have had their day in court. And, and like I said in the forum earlier, no one will be disagreeing that their life is in danger. And we're actually having a sort of academic discussion about the nexus between the violence and their role and their identity in their society. And when violence is as vicious and widespread and random as it is in Central America right now, they're simply not qualifying in the, in the scale that they need to be. So what that means is political asylum is the incorrect tool to be helping our neighbors from Central America right now. About what percentage of the people that you represent, Horatio Moreno Campos and Allegra Love, who are seeking that kind of asylum succeed in getting it? Well, we were just talking about this. I actually, these are very long, protracted cases, and I actually took my first case to El Paso this February, and we lost. That's because our, our immigration judges in El Paso approve about 1% or 2% of asylum claims. We're known as an asylum-free zone. We have the worst approval rate in the entire United States. I think, I think Atlanta is comparable mm-hmm. and the Carolinas. But, you know, other places, New York, Virginia, California, you see 50%, 60% approval rates. El Paso is at a 1% approval rate right now. And for people who seek this status without an attorney to help them? Impossible. Forget it. Literally impossible. So we are in a complex situation that's extremely dangerous for many people. And I think, Grecia Rivas, you would probably agree with me that anyone living where we do here, anyone in Arizona, may have many friends and neighbors who are really seriously at risk. And they don't realize that their friends and neighbors are seriously at risk. These are the people they've lived around for years. They have no idea that they are at that risk. And so, Magdaleno Manzanares, I would like to ask you to draw on your professional expertise here. You have studied North American border conflicts, and I imagine that we have many listeners now who are wondering, how did we come to this circumstance? How did we come to a situation where a judge knows that it is a career-ending move to protect 250 people having just witnessed the execution of 250 people in similar circumstances, why should that judge not be commended for having made a wise decision? How did we get here? What are the factors? You've written about race, ethics, politics, economic security. 
Can you tell us how this came to be? 1848, February 2nd, the end of the Mexican-American War. This part of the United States was born out of conflict, just like the country, except that the revolutionaries are our heroes, and the Mexicans are the antiheroes and have been throughout history. So when economic conditions, and you know, right from 18, 1848 to 1953 in the North Bay of San Francisco, you know, Lake Berryessa, Los Robles, now called Oakland, it began with violence, dispossessing people of their lands because they were inferior, and they are still inferior in the eyes of Trump and his followers. And so you take it from February 2nd to 1848, of 1848 to today's date. And that's what it goes. When are Mexicans, or Central America in this case, welcome? When we need them. That happened during First World War, right after Mexicans were expelled. What happened in the 1930s? Thousands and thousands of Mexicans, both from both sides, and when I use the word Mexican, I mean culturally Mexicans, Mm -hmm. not citizenship-wise. So Mexicans from both sides, or rather U.S. Mexicans, citizens of the U.S., were expelled from California, for sure, from this part, the miners, in those days. So is this the worst time? I doubt it. You ask the grandparents and great-grandparents of the Mexicans or Hispanics in this part of the world, they will tell you that in the 1930s, with expulsion, the mass expulsions uh, of Mexican-Americans was a very ugly situation. Then you have the late 1950s with, we love Ike, we like Ike. You know, Operation Wetback, that's what it was called. Thousands were raided and sent. So for Mexicans, for Latinos in the Southwest, this is no new. It has been going on since 1848. And if I can be brief, is that history well known among Latinos? Among Latinos? No. No. Their grandparents haven't told them those stories? Look, there is no history known to Latinos or non Latinos in the U.S. because it's not being taught in the schools. Simply as that. I mean, I'm not being a radical or anything like that. It's the truth, for heaven's sakes. And there is rampant ignorance from our side in terms of the Mexican-Americans, and certainly a lot of ignorance from non-Mexicans either. And that is a reflection of a continuous oppression. That's what it is. What do you see as the fundamental elements or ingredients of that? Is it values and attitudes that are racist, culturally biased? Is there financial gain that comes into play? We have only a few minutes left, but I hope the you answer can is give yes. us your analysis. Why do you create an empire if not to make money? Why do you have a demographic group that benefits more than others? To make money, to feel secure, to be in control. That's easy to answer. The question is, where are the solutions? And you asked the question before, how do you start? How do you help immigrants? Yes. Well, How do you the, make yourself an effective ally? The first thing you have to do, is my view, and it's very simple and it's very essential, you look at them as human beings. That's it. 
was that brief enough? Yes, thank <laughs> okay. you, Magdaleno Manzanares. And in our last, I might say, two minutes, because I need to close the program as well, are there take-home lessons that any of you would like to put briefly? What would you like our listeners to remember, particularly any one of you, from this discussion we've had? To be, let me, um, uh, and, and thank you to your audience, by the way, Jamie. Um, yes. Good evening to everyone. <laughs> Ex post facto almost. Yes. It's, it's to, to be accepting of the differences and that immigrants are not necessarily out here to eat their lunches. Others? Allegra Love, Gracia Rivas, George Carr, Horatio Moreno Campos. Do you have any? Last words of wisdom or recommendations? That was pretty profound, what we just heard. I'd, I'd like to say one George thing. George Carr. Adolf Hitler decided that it was necessary to expel the leading uh, physicist dealing with splitting the atom. It's a great thing for us that he did that. By expelling people from this country, what are we doing? I take your point. We are expelling a wealth of human resources. Exactly. Gracia Rivas, is there anything that you would like to say by way of conclusion? I agree with Dr. Manzanares and just treat us as human beings. We're just like you. We want to work. We want an education. We want a better future. We're human beings. Thank you very much. Well... You have been listening to Civil Discourse, a public affairs production of Gila Mimbres Community Radio and KURU 89.1 FM. Our topic tonight was Immigration Justice 2017, Risks, Rights, and Opportunities. On our website, gmcr.org, we will post links to resources for immigrants and their allies. We also expect to broadcast a recording of the March 30th, 2017 forum at WNMU on immigration, refugees, and dreamers. Three of my guests were forum panelists, attorneys Allegra Love and Horatio Moreno Campos, and dreamer student Grecia Rivas Chavez. And the moderator was Dr. Magdaleno Manzanares. Thanks to all of you and to attorney George Carr for joining us on Civil Discourse. I would like to remind you that Gila Mimbres Community Radio, KURU, is supported entirely by the community we serve, that is, by you. Please help us keep real news, locally produced programs like Civil Discourse, great music, and cultural programming coming your way, in both Spanish and English, by the way. By becoming a member and donating, visit us online at gmcr.org. Thanks to our audio engineer, Kyle Johnson. Thank you for listening. For Hilo Ingres, Community Radio and KURU 89.1 FM, I'm Jamie Newton.